Well, as most of you know, we're engaged in a verse-by-verse study through the New Testament book of Revelation. This morning, we begin chapter 17. Revelation describes a series of visions given to the Apostle John by Jesus, and like the rest of Scripture, it paints this consistent picture of God's own mission to redeem lost sinners and save all who will believe by grace through faith in Jesus. But in Revelation, John describes the completion of God's redemptive mission and the final defeat of evil itself and the vindication of faithful believers. As we open chapter 17, angels of God have just finished pouring out the bowls containing the seven last plagues, and we have been told that in them the wrath of God is complete. Redeemed believers... We're pictured in heaven singing about the deliverance of God's people and the righteous judgment of those who oppress them, while the seven angels unleashed the wrath of God upon those who remain on the earth. As the story has progressed, it began with violent and deadly tribulation that only affected a fraction of the earth, but here toward the end, bowls full of God's wrath are poured out on all the earth. As God turns up the heat on those who defy him, we have observed that he does so in an incremental fashion, in a way designed to draw lost people to repentance and salvation, giving them both reason and opportunity to turn to God. However, these earth dwellers worship the beast. They have taken his mark. They blaspheme God and refuse to repent. They have chosen sides with evil. They have participated in the persecution and the murder of God's people. And God has not forgotten the cries for justice raised up by his martyrs. Which brings us to our material for this morning, beginning in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Well, like much of the book of Revelation, this vision is presented using symbolic language and symbolic descriptions. As a result, deciphering the identity of the various characters in the vision is the key task facing the reader. Fortunately, God gave us this book as a revelation not as a mystery. So we can presume that like the rest of Scripture, it is perspicuous, which is to say God intentionally presented it in a way that would be clear and easy to understand. Now, in keeping with that principle, the more elusive the symbolism, the more help God is going to give us in understanding the meaning that he wants to convey. Keep in mind, God isn't necessarily going to address every aspect of the story that arouses our curiosity. After all, it's his story, and he will tell us all that we need to know. Our job is to diligently seek out the truth that he reveals here and figure out what to do with it. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me. John doesn't tell us which one of the seven angels came and talked with him, but 
given what's about to be revealed here, it's comforting that God would send a familiar figure to offer a bit of much-needed insight. Not only does this angel's presence provide a measure of continuity to the story, it also suggests that the judgment that's about to be unleashed is, in some ways, an extension or an elaboration of the bold judgments of chapter 16, particularly the cosmic storm and earthquake that came from the seventh bowl. As we saw last time, when the seventh bowl was poured out on the air, an unprecedented earthquake caused the great city to be divided into three parts. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So as we look back, it appears that the Seventh seal, way in the beginning, gave rise to the trumpet judgments, and then the seventh trumpet gave rise to the bowl judgments, and now the seventh bowl judgment finds extension and elaboration in the forthcoming final judgment. This is why we have observed so many times that the book of Revelation is not presented as a linear story, progressing chronologically and predictably along an orderly timeline. Instead, it is rather like a telescope, a spyglass, in that even when it is extended for viewing, each section overlaps a portion of the next section so that the various parts are never completely separated. Thus, while we are making a significant shift to a new act in this end times play, it does not appear nearly as abrupt as it might otherwise be. So we're told that one of the angels from the previous chapter came and talked with John, saying to him, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. With this, John is introduced to the next important figure in the story, a great harlot. Now, harlot is not a word that we use much anymore, but when we do... We think of a harlot as a prostitute, or at least a promiscuous woman. In a number of versions, the word is actually translated as prostitute. Now, a classic dictionary definition for harlot would be a woman who yields herself to sexual defilement for the sake of lust or financial gain. Notably, as commentators readily recall, throughout the history of Israel, Idolatry and general unfaithfulness to God are frequently presented in terms of spiritual adultery. But in this case, we will discover that the unfaithfulness is particularly profound. Therefore, the word usually used for adultery gives way here to the more morally encompassing term that simply refers to reckless and immoral behavior of a sexual nature. This woman has chosen the path of rebellion against God as an established way of life. Thus, when the angel describes her as the great harlot, it's not a designation of value, but instead it's a description of her size or perhaps her prominence. The implication is that she's a character of great influence. Although, as we will discover... It's not a particularly good influence. In any case, the angel tells John, 
I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. This perverse character with a great bad influence on others is about to receive her own judgment. And God has sent this angel to reveal that judgment to John and by extension to us. We know about the great bad influence this harlot has had on others because, at least in part, the angel describes it, albeit in symbolic terms. But before we get there, we're also given a clue to the identity of the harlot, which also comes to us in symbolic terms. We are told that she is the great harlot who sits on many waters. So what does it mean that she's pictured in this way? Well, it's possibly an allusion to Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 13, where Babylon is described as you who dwell by many waters. Later in verse 5 of this chapter, we will find this great harlot clearly associated with the name of Babylon the Great. But even that is symbolic, and for reasons that will eventually become clear, we will ultimately identify her not with Babylon, but with Rome. But for now, by describing her as a great harlot who sits on many waters, the angel uses language that conveys dominion and control. After all, to sit upon a nation, or any other thing for that matter, is to conquer and control it. So then, the angel portrays her as the great harlot with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now remember, the angel's about to show John the judgment of the great harlot. And so here, we discover at least part of the reason for this judgment. She is the one with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. Moreover, she's the one with whom the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Well, Our Puritan sensitivities may be troubled by the use of this sexualized language. But understand, there are no lewd images here. Instead, as we've noted, this is the way the Old Testament frequently speaks, using the imagery of prostitution to depict both immorality and idolatry. In Jeremiah 3, verse 1, God proclaims that Israel has played the harlot with many lovers. Again, in the book of Hosea, she is said to have played the harlot. God chose Israel to be a peculiar people that would follow him and in turn lead the rest of the world to faith in the one true God. But Israel herself was not faithful to God. Instead, The Bible is full of stories about how the people often embraced the idols and pagan practices of those around them. This is the kind of behavior that God describes as spiritual adultery. And as experts point out, the imagery is always that of not only committing fornication, but also leading others into doing the same. In other words, playing the harlot. And in fact, that appears to be the thrust here in chapter 17 as well. For Babylon, Rome, has evidently become a harlot leading other nations into immorality and idolatry. Now, there are times when the behavior of a nation's leader is imputed by God to the people of that nation. 
And indeed, you get the impression that the rulers here have themselves led their respective nations astray. But the angel makes it clear that it wasn't just the kings of the earth that embraced the great harlot. The inhabitants of the earth were also made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now that particular description presents a fascinating parallel metaphor. You see, the kings have followed their lust and committed spiritual fornication with the great harlot. They've embraced her and joined her in her evil determination to rebel against God. All the while, the subjects of these kings, by now the only remaining inhabitants on the earth, were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So you know, just like being drunk with real wine, what we're presented with here is the image of people losing control and being taken over by a foreign influence. Quite predictably, all of the people have followed the example of their rulers and have joined them in what is quite possibly both actual and religious adultery. And as it is with real wine, when you welcome intoxication, you give up self-control. But because you chose to drink while you were still in your right mind, you continue to be responsible for your actions, even though you may have been taken over by a foreign influence. Alas, God's judgments are always righteous. Now, up to this point, the angel has merely been talking to John. He's simply been describing the thing he's about to show John. But it doesn't end there. Evidently, this lesson requires a field trip. So, in verse 3, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Well... If you've been here throughout the study, you may remember that John's been carried away before. Back in chapter 4, verse 2, John was taken in the Spirit to the throne of heaven. Here he is again carried away in the Spirit, only this time into the wilderness. You remember that John receives all of these visions while he is on the island called Patmos, where he was imprisoned for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And while he now describes being carried away in the spirit into the wilderness, the immediate impression is that John did not physically leave his island prison. Instead, he was supernaturally carried away in the spirit across time and space, into the wilderness. Now, the last time the wilderness was mentioned was back in chapter 12, when the woman who had given birth to the Savior fled into the wilderness to a place prepared by God for her protection and provision. Here, the image of the wilderness takes on a distinctly less positive quality as the location of Babylon the Great. But we should not assume that the angel is taking John to the real geopolitical location once known as Babylon, even though Babylon was arguably a city that rose up out of the wilderness or desert. Instead, we need to remember that the angel is describing real events, but he is doing so in symbolic terms. 
So having arrived in the wilderness in the spirit, John saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. As we may already presume, she is the great harlot who was introduced in verses 1 and 2. Again, the posture of sitting on a thing may suggest some measure of control over it. But what are we to make of this image of a woman sitting on a scarlet beast? Well, based on John's description of the beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, I think we can be fairly confident that this scarlet beast is the same beast he saw rising out of the sea back in chapter 13, verse 1. And as we determined back then, this beast represents the political authority of the last days. At least the human political authority. And commentators widely agree that the woman riding the beast represents the blasphemous religion that seduces the nations and perhaps even the economic system that draws, it, draws them into uh, its earthly opulence. But all we know for now is that we see this woman riding a scarlet beast. And as we know from the ancient Chinese proverb about riding the tiger, you cannot be eaten by the tiger when you're riding it, but it can be hard to stay on top, and even harder to dismount when you want the ride to end. If the experts are correct, the great harlot and the scarlet beast then share a dangerous interdependence. And setting aside the wisdom of our own nation's forefathers, the fact that the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her suggests an unwholesome union of church and state, which results in the intoxication of all the peoples of the earth. Well, you may have heard Karl Marx famously describing religion as the opiate of the masses. But his actual thoughts on the subject are more nuanced and intentional. To some people, that maxim that religion is the opiate of the masses might suggest that some despot could use religion as a distraction to keep his people from rebelling. But Marx, who actually embraced the cleansing effect of revolution, saw religion as the enemy of the people's well-being. These were his actual words on the topic. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people, the abolition of religion, as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. Spoken like a true non-Christian. It was with these words that Karl Marx condemned religion for making the disadvantaged masses complacent in the face of injustice. Of course, that may be true for some religions more than others. Here in Revelation, it appears that the religion of the great harlot invites all the inhabitants of the earth to indulge and intoxicate themselves with everything God created for our good pleasure. But at the same time, it provokes them to excess, to perversion and ingratitude that smacks of spiritual adultery and fornication. And as we will discover shortly, the fact that the beast is scarlet tends to suggest the great wealth of the empire. 
That said, the balance of John's description appears to be taken almost directly from chapter 13, verse 1. Beast rising up out of the sea, seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, the heads and the horns will be interpreted in the ensuing verses. We may get to, God willing, next week. Meanwhile, the names of blasphemy add to the air of slandering God's name, which permeates the atmosphere of this whole section. Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. An odd contrast is offered here as the woman is first described by reference to her phenomenal wealth and then by the depth of her debauchery. The fact that she was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls speaks to her worldly prosperity. Purple was the color of royalty, just as scarlet was the color of wealth. Scholars explain that in ancient times, these were very expensive dyes. So they were widely associated with the only people who could really afford them, the rich and the powerful. In addition, she was adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, further evidence of her vast wealth. But it's more than just wealth. John's description conveys the distinct impression that this woman's ensemble is gaudy and ostentatious. She is, I think, therefore guilty of attaching undue value to the things of this world and no value to the things of God. She's also described as having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So the cup itself is golden, but the contents are filthy abominations. Once again, the devil is first and foremost a deceiver. And therefore, evil is not always what it appears to be. In spite of her apparent wealth and power, this woman doesn't have fine wine in her golden cup. Instead, she is imbibing in abominations and the filthiness of her fornication, the raw sewage of fallen flesh. Therefore, while her appearance may, from a distance, entice those who embrace depravity. All her wealth is an abomination to God because it is joined inextricably with her abject immorality. Theologians have actually suggested this image is taken from Jeremiah 51 verse 7 where Jeremiah prophesies the destruction of Babylon and calls it a golden cup in the Lord's hand that has made all the earth drunk. Thus, while Babylon is the gold cup in Jeremiah, the depravity of Babylon provides the contents of this golden cup here in Revelation. There is no doubt a lesson in all of this imagery that worldly wealth can be intoxicating. But in the end, if we seek only luxury and prosperity, we will eventually find only the wrath of God. For as Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. Verse 5. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now in ancient times, a name embodied the entire character of the person. So that when people believed in the name of Jesus, they believed in everything that that name represented. Here, the name of the great harlot is written on her forehead, and despite her deceptive appearance, the name tells us all we need to know to determine her true identity. The first name, mystery, may not actually be part of the name as such. Instead, it may just describe the name. In that sense, commentators suggest we should read it this way that on her forehead was written a mysterious name. This actually makes a lot of sense when you remember that in Scripture, the word mystery doesn't refer to a crime scene or an unresolved issue, but rather to a fact that could not have been discerned by human ingenuity and had to be revealed by God. Babylon the Great suggests that, in one way or another, the great harlot represents the empire of the beast. And the final part of the mysterious appellation written on the forehead of this great harlot was this, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. When deciphering this part of the name, scholars point out that in the New Testament, the phrase son of refers to one's primary characteristic. For example, son of righteousness or sons of thunder. However, to be called the mother of means not only that it characterizes the person individually, but that the person has reproduced that character as mothers do in others. Thus, the great harlot has dragged down others in her rebellion against God. Verse 6. I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. This image of being drunk with blood suggests a sort of bloodlust where a depraved army might slaughter innocents and enemies with no distinction between them. Here, the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She had spilled the blood of God's people, saints and martyrs alike, and drank it with great eagerness, and now she is thoroughly intoxicated by it. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Literally, the phrase would be transfer, translated, I was amazed with great amazement. Surely John is struck with wonder at the incredible vision. And at the same time, he is no doubt somewhat confused by the imagery. After all, the angel had told him that he would see Babylon's judgment. But instead, he sees her luxury and glory and apparent triumph. As one writer put it, he is both perplexed and horrified. And we should be too. But at the same time, there's plenty of valuable truth to be gleaned from this vision, even the part that we've just read this far. For we know that God comforts the faithful, 
even as he protects and provides for them, even in the midst of their suffering. He graciously gives us these prophetic insights as a warning so that no one will have to be caught unaware. As we go through life, we should be careful whom we follow, for we will surely end up sharing their destiny. When we take something that God intended for our good pleasure and pervert it, use it excessively, or take it to ourselves without gratitude to God, we sadly succeed in turning a blessing into a sin. Instead, we must always be careful not to attach too much value to the things of this world and not enough value to the things of God. Finally, as we've learned over and over again in this study, evil operates on the basis of shrewd deception. And as such, evil is not always what it appears to be. Therefore, follow Christ closely. Be conscious of the dangers all around you. And always, always be aware of your own weaknesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this insight into your perfect judgment and the nature of the evil that seeks to separate us from your love and purpose in our lives. Help us to follow you so closely, Lord, that we might see evil for what it is and never give the enemy even a foothold in our life. We thank you, Lord, that you do not compromise, that your holiness is pure and your love for us unconditional. We thank you in the name of Jesus who gives us hope. Amen.